Thank you, Jerry. All right, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm the pastor here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, I'm glad you're here this morning with us. We are going to finish up this morning a series that we've been doing for the first eight weeks of our existence. I've, I've said, you know, I, every time I see somebody, I say, hey, this is week eight, seven down, uh, about 2,000 to go. Because we figure 50 weeks, 40 years of ministry, that's 2,000 worship services. So we're in week eight of 2,000. Welcome. Uh, to what we're doing. Um, but we are finishing up a series on the book of Nehemiah in your Old Testament scriptures, and you'll find that the worship in your worship folder, there's a there's an insert where the passage is printed for you there, and it'll also, it'll also be on the screen behind me. I need to be careful not to do that again. I think I turned around and looked at the screen. Yes. Slide to the left a little bit. Um, so we are going to we're going to finish this series up this morning, and then next next week begins our our Advent season. Four weeks of Advent. If you don't have your Advent wreath and your Advent candles yet, go get those before they sell out. But we're going to spend four weeks together looking at the Psalms and how they point us forward to the coming of the one who who came uh, to save us, Jesus, our Savior. Um, but this morning we're going to come to this passage in Nehemiah chapter ten, uh, looking at the final act, the third act in this covenant renewal ceremony we've been looking at. Remember. In chapter 8, we saw that God has gathered his people together to renew the covenant he has made with them. And the first thing they do is they throw a great celebration. And we've said that if we're going to be a people in our city who attack the brokenness and the need in our city, that we do have to be a people who learn how to party and how to celebrate the fact that God is saving us. And then last week, we talked about the second act being the act where they begin to confess their sins. And that if we're going to be a people who are faithful in our engagement in the brokenness of our city, that one of the practices we've got to pray that God will, will form in us is that we would confess our sins. So I, there's a confession I guess I need to make this morning to, to model that for you. Uh, the demon crap comment last week was a joke. You're still not laughing. Marta, they're still not laughing. It went over like a ton of bricks. Sarcasm does not communicate well. It is forever erased from the memory of this world because Susan took it out when she recorded the sermon graciously. So that's my confession to you this morning. I was joking and I did it poorly. So forgive me of my sin. Um, but this morning we part of this is, um, is that the people now, after they've confessed their sins, they begin to consecrate themselves to God. Now remember, Nehemiah, this story is of a, man, of a man who is sent to his hometown, much like this is my hometown, many of your hometown. He's sent to his hometown, Jerusalem, because the walls are broken down there and the city is in disrepair and there's great need for renewal, both physically and spiritually and socially. And what we have been saying is, is that the key to physical, spiritual, and cultural renewal in our city, in our nation, in our world, is what God is doing in us. The church is God's missionary strategy of people who know how to have a good time, of people who take sin seriously and live lives of confession, and then thirdly today, of people of unquestioned obedience. So come with me to this passage in Nehemiah. We're actually going to begin by reading the first verse of chapter 9 and then um, chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, and then 35 through 37. Let's read together. Remember, they've just confessed their sins. They're gathered in the presence of God. Verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this... We made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves 
from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. This is God's word. If you read the scripture carefully, I think what you'll find is that there is unquestionably a, a, a great expectation on God's part that we would be a people who hear his word and obey. And that sounds, that sounds um, almost like it doesn't need to be said. But I, I just want to begin this morning by saying um, that there is an expectation. There's an expectation in the scriptures that we would be a people who hear God's word and obey. And so Joshua, um, God says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be afraid. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate it on it day and night, and be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will have great success and then you will make your way prosperous. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 18, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, Jesus is commissioning his people, the church, to go into the world and hear the instructions he gives them. Go and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach all of them to obey all that I have commanded of you. See, the expectation is, is that we would be a people who obey God, who hear his voice and obey him, and as we disciple, that we would be discipling and teaching people in this reality of obedience, that we just don't repent. That's last week. We talked about what it means to be a people of confession and repentance, but there's a dual movement that we're called to in the Scriptures, of a movement of repentance and then a movement of faith. Repentance means turning away from our sin and our rebellion in light of God's Word, but faith is turning toward Him with a sincere heart, and desire to love him and obey him. The people hear God's word as we're preaches all day long. That's what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. They respond by confessing their sins, but that's not the end of it. Here in, in, in this chapter, they're covenanting themselves with God. In verse 28 of chapter 9, you see that. They're binding themselves to him. They are obligating themselves to obedience. And the message is, is obedience is not optional. It's not up for debate. It's what God's greatness and his goodness require. And somehow, we've come to believe, you know, I can be a Christian and not read God's word and not come to worship on Sunday. And spirituality is just this little compartment of my life that has no bearing on the rest. And I would just pose to you a different idea this morning. And I would ask you this question. 
what's big enough to not just be part of your life, but to define all the parts of your life? Is there anything big enough that is, not, that, that is so big it can't just be contained as one little part of your life, but it begins to define all the parts of your life? And that's what we're seeing the people responding to here in this passage. They are consecrating themselves to the one who is so big he cannot be contained in one little compartment of our lives, but he begins to define everything. They're setting a life purpose that results in a different way of living. That's what consecrate. That's what it means to consecrate ourselves. It means to, to set a life purpose. But who defines that purpose? God's voice does. I'm setting the totality of my life purpose toward Him, and this life purpose is defined by Him and around Him. It means here's what it means. I'm going to think through absolutely everything, everything I do, everything I own, every relationship I'm engaged in. Everything has its orientation in the one unifying person, Jesus Christ, Lord and creator of all. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it look like to live a life of consecration? And we're going to look at three things. First, the call to consecration. Then secondly, an illustration of it. And then thirdly, we're going to try to find the motivation for it. So if we're going to talk about what it means to be a people who are consecrated to God, we're going to talk about the why, the what, and the how of that consecration. Those three things, you'll see them as the three points in your outline on the back side of that page where you have the scripture passage that we just read. Beginning first with just what do we mean? What is the call to consecration? What is the why of consecration here in this passage? And if you look with me, you'll see there in verse 29 of chapter 10, and this is the scary part. I had um, Samantha... Crouch, you came to me this morning and said, I'm scared to death of this sermon because of this idea of, of being cursed and, and all the things that are going on here. But you'll see there um, that, that what happens is the people come and what we see is that they join together in verse 29 and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. See, they were reaffirming the covenant relationship that, that was theirs with Yahweh. And, and this is what was going on in that. And in that day and in that time, this idea of covenant was very fundamental. It was an agreement that two parties would enter into together. And each party had a certain obligation that they had to fulfill. A business transaction or some sort of, but mainly, most of the time, relational in its nature. That we came and we said, okay, we're entering into covenant with one another. And part of the ceremony in that day is they would take... Um, animals, maybe birds, um, maybe cows, um, but they would take animals and they would literally cut the animals in half. They would, they, would, they, would, they would cut the animals in half and they would lay the two halves kind of side by side with a little pathway in between. And as a part of the covenant ceremony, each of the persons who were taking part in this covenant would take turns walking through the pieces that had been ripped apart and laid out. And what they were signifying is, is as they walked, as they passed between the pieces, they were saying, if I fail to meet the obligations that I'm taking upon myself this day in covenant with you, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals. Does that make sense? And so it was a way of solemnly binding yourself to the other person and taking upon yourself a responsibility and an obligation to keep the command or to keep the, the, the part of the covenant that was yours to keep. And you were saying, if I don't, then may a curse fall upon me and may I be ripped in two in the same way that these animals have been ripped in two. That's what's going on here. And so we see that they take upon themselves an oath and a curse. They are making a self-maledictory oath. What in the world is that? 
It's the opposite of a benediction. We pronounce the benediction over you. Um, we could get Jonathan up here to, to take us through the Latin, but benediction is, is a Latin phrase or a Latin word that means a good word. Bene for good, diction for word. It is a good word. But self-malediction is, is the exact opposite. It's to say, I'm so committed to this that if I fail to meet my obligations, may I be cursed. The people take an oath that they would walk in God's law and observe and do the commandments of the Lord. That's verse 29. They're giving their word that they are going to obey. And they say, and, and the force of it is such that they say, if we don't obey, May God's curse fall upon us. Exactly. Well timed, Sarah. That's my daughter. Uh-oh, she said. That was beautiful. That's a move of the spirit right there. They're giving their word much the same as the wedding I did yesterday when the, wife, when the, when the, the bride and the groom stand and they look one another in their eye. And they give their word to love one another till death do us part. You see, this is a pattern of what we would refer to in that day in that culture of the ancient, ancient suzerain vassal treaties where the suzerain, the conquering king, the great king of Persia or Babylonia, when he conquered another people, the suzerain, suzerain would promise protection and peace to the, to the little king of the little kingdom he had conquered. And in turn, the vassal, the vassal king would promise loyalty and tribute. There are promises on both sides. And God has entered into a covenant with his people. He's made promises to them to bless them, to rescue them, to make them strong and give them victory. He's promised to us to work in our lives, to forgive our sins, to bring our children to salvation by his spirit, to raise us up from death to live with him in heaven and forever. And what blows my mind is what I find to be true in my own heart and what I find to be true of so many people that I deal with is that we want all of the things that he promises us. And even we expect all of them. We want God to do for us all of the things he promises, but we want him to do it without any attempt on our part to fulfill our part of the covenant relationship. God, you be faithful and you be true to all you've promised to do for me, but don't expect the same in return from me. Now, dads, let me ask you, how would you feel if your daughter was marrying a man who acted like that? I expect for you to do this and this and this, but you know what? Don't set your expectations too high. No, thank you. You see, you can't have God's promises without filling your part of the covenant obligation. That's what they're recognizing. That's what these people are recognizing, and they're acting on it in this passage. And really, there's two things they're doing here. The first is that they're recognizing, if you look at verse 29, they're recognizing the Lord as their Lord. You see that? We will observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They're saying he's the king, and we are his subjects. His word is law, unquestioned, uncontested. But the Lord, when he says we, the Lord is our Lord, that the first Lord there that's in all caps, if you're looking at it in your Bible, is the word Yahweh. It's his covenant name. It's the name God uses when he comes to Moses in, in Exodus, as we've been reading CBR in our community Bible reading, and as we saw in our call to worship, it's the, the, the name he uses as he sends Moses into Egypt to rescue his people. It's the name that speaks of his special relationship with the people of Israel and by extension with us. It's the name 
that, that speaks his ownership of his people. They're his, his special possession, his holy people, his treasure. Because he created them, and he saved them. And so any call to obedience, I don't know why it's doing that. I'm sorry, do I need to just, is it too close to my mouth? Harry's going to come up and try to adjust it. But anytime I'm, I'm, I'm the, the Baptist in me comes out every now and then, and I get fired, you know, something comes really loud, and that's why it's doing that. But any call to obedience in the Scripture is prefaced by the statement, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, if you go to the, the, to the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, and if you look at the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covenant, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, all those kinds of things. If you look back at the very beginning, God begins that interchange with his people by saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, obedience is never just in a vacuum. It's never arbitrary. There's a history. And the history is of God's gracious dealing with us as his people as he calls for wholehearted obedience and response that all he, as he has done to save us, to rescue us, to gather us together, and to bless us as his people. And the people are saying they recognize that the Lord, the one who has saved them and rescued them, he is the Lord, he is the king, and his word is law, unquestioned and unchallenged. And then what they do is they're making themselves, I mean, here's what's happening in this, they're making themselves in response to that God, they're making themselves liable to blessing or curse dependent upon their obedience. That's really what's happening. They're making themselves liable to blessing or to curse dependent upon their obedience to his word. They enter into an oath and a curse. Now, that's scary or what? God, if we don't keep your laws and your statutes and your rules, may your curse fall upon us. Anybody else ready to line up to do that this morning? But that's, that's the nature of the covenant. In the covenant relationship with God, God said, if you obey me, there will be blessing and prosperity and peace for you. But if you disobey me, there's going to be destruction and curse and, and, and your life is going to fall apart. And you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's some of the most powerful passages in all of the scripture. And God tells the people, here's what I want you to do. When you come into the land, there's this valley. And I want you to gather the people in the valley. And on top of this mountain, on this side of the valley, I want someone to yell out all of the promises of God. If you obey me, I will bless you in this way and this way and this way and this way. And then when he's done from this mountain over here, I want somebody to stand up on this mountain and I want them to pronounce for all the people to hear all the curses. If you disobey me, then curse will come upon you in this way and in this way and in this way. And it's just remarkable. And so there are the people gathered in the presence of God, hearing the word of God preached over them, consecrating themselves to the word as the promises of blessing are being spoken over them from this side and the promises of cursing are being spoken from, you know, to them from this side. I mean, that is the nature of the relationship in which God has established with all those that's created, he has created. And it's not, it's not that God's law is arbitrary. I mean, you, we, we hear that and something in us just reacts negatively. It's like the story C.S. Lewis told. He said there, there was a story about a schoolboy who asked what he thought God was like, and the reply the boy made was that as far as he can make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anybody was enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. 
The kids are brilliant. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, morality raises in, good, in a good many people's minds something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time, when in reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. So elsewhere, C.S. Lewis, and I just want to get, did we get this quote? Is it up there? No. C.S. Lewis writes that all the problems we encounter is an attempt to live out from underneath God's authority. We, we, do, we do this in our home. Um, one of the ways we're training our kids is we're saying, okay, here's the circle of, of mommy, mommy and daddy's um, expectations and of our teaching and of our discipline of you. This is the way we are trying to train you to live. And if you will obey, if you will listen, and if you will do the things we tell you, then you stay within this circle of protection and blessing. But kids, the minute you decide, you know what, I'm not going to listen to her. I, you know, my, when my five-year-old, I know more than you know. And so I'm not going to do what you say. And I'm just going to come over here and I'm going to go my own way. What we're trying to teach our kids is the moment you do that, you're opening yourself up to danger and all kinds of bad things. See, that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. He says all of our problems, all of the problems we encounter are the result of an attempt to live out from underneath God's authority or to invent a happiness on our own apart from him. And so he writes, and this is just marvelous. It's just marvelous to me. He says, quote, the reason why this can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents a machine or an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. Do you hear that? That's why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God knows how the human machine works. He created human society. He created marriage. I tell people that I do premarital counseling with all the time. God invented marriage. And so you enter into marriage under his authority, whether you will or not. He knows what makes for a good marriage. He knows what leads to blessing, and he knows what leads to pain and sadness. There is a design, and when we break that design, death and curse and destruction follow. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve said, we don't need you. We know better than you. We don't have to live obedient to you. We don't have to live under your authority. We're going to become our own gods and think about how things have gone. So you see, there's a call. There's a call to consecrate ourselves in light of the covenant relationship we enjoy with him. But then secondly, so there's a call to obedience. That's the why. But what does it look like? What specifically are we talking about? And I want you to look there in verse 28 again, and you'll see there's a phrase. All, it talks about the people in this way. It says, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land into the law of God. Now, notice something about holiness there. That word separation is the word we use for holiness. But when, when we talk about holiness in the church, it's not just separation from, but it's also separation towards something. Holiness means to be separate from. It means to, to come out. And the concern 
all over the place in Nehemiah and the book of Ezra is that the returned exiles, the people who've come back from Babylon to be in the city of Jerusalem, not adopt the way of life of the nations around them, but remain faithful to God's vision for their corporate identity, to be his people. They are to be separate from the peoples of the lands, but also separated to. And there's a way that we can begin to define holiness in purely negative terms as a long list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But, but in the Bible, what makes God's people holy is not what they've been separated from, but what they've been separated for or towards. A new way of living, a mission, a calling to love and to serve. Now, let me apply this very quickly to three things that people mention here. Marriage, time, and money. They're the three things that, that the people pick up that are being redefined in light of who God is and even for us in Jesus. To commit to walk in God's law and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord means there are huge implications for all of our lives, but even for these three areas, marriage or relationships, time, and money. So look with me at those three really quickly. Verse, the verse 30, they say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. There's a broader concern, again, the issue over and over again being the ungodly influence of unbelieving in-laws on the future generations. I love it. I love this. God says, beware of in-laws. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that is great. That, 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 amen. That's good news. <laughs> Israel marrying from the culture around them means that the cultural influences and practices get assimilated. And this has happened in my own family. When I met Ashley, I had to call ahead to the restaurant we were going to to make sure they had grilled chicken with no sauce on it. Because that's how she ate. Now, my girl's getting a cheeseburger when she goes out for dinner. Okay? I've absolutely corrupted her. Absolutely corrupted her. In a, you know, I'm sorry. We need some help, Whitney. Please come and help us. We, you know, absolutely. I mean, the same thing happened. Jonathan and Jamie are friends. When when I met Jamie Kuhn uh, 15 years ago, she was diehard Gator, all the way Gator. I saw her in a Seminole sweatshirt last Sunday and about freaked out. How's that happen? Marriage. Sin. Yeah, Charlie says sin. Exactly. Absolutely. And God says, God, God, the, the, people, the people understand what an important part of this thing this is. And so they say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. Um, I have two daughters. I believe in arranged marriages. I do. They do it in India. I've been there. It works for them. Works for me. But think about that. The parents get together and say, I know my kid. And I believe that I can find a suitable person to be with them for the rest of their lives. And the kids in India just say, you know what? We trust our parents. Yeah, pray for me. That's what I'm trying to build into my daughters. I don't know. But the idea that marriage and relationships should, should serve or fit into the larger mission we've been called to. Right? How do you, so teenagers, how do you go about finding somebody to marry, you know? And I love Mark Driscoll's a pastor in Seattle. He says, you know, guys come to me all the time. She's hot. And he says, so is hell. <laughs> and that lasts forever. And you better have a different way of figuring out who you're going to be with than that. 
Because marriage is called, you're called to a marriage, to, to, that marriage should serve or fit into the larger mission of what we've been called to, and that has huge implications for about the screening process. Believe it. There's something really serious going on here, but not only in marriage, uh, but also time and Sabbath. Not only are we to be a people who begin to think about marriage and relationships differently, but a people who think about tell, and tell time differently. They say, look there in verse 31, we will not buy or sell on the Sabbath. God had commanded them that one out of every seven days would be given to holy rest and worship and do mercy in the name of, of the Lord their God. And that it would, would be a holy day set apart from the rest of the days of the week in its meaning and its function. The prophet Isaiah, I looked it up this week, says it this way. He says that we should not we should not go our own way or seek our own pleasure or talk idly on the Sabbath, but that we should delight in the Lord, that the day belongs to him. It's his. It's the one day of our week where we don't get to set the agenda, but he does. One day is a sign that every second belongs to him. But the Sabbath also has broader principles and applications here. They go on to say in verse 31, if you see there, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year. Now, what does that mean? And here I, I have, again, this is beyond me about how we even begin to make application of this. But in the law of God, the law legislated that the people would work the land for six years and then every seventh year they would take the year off. Anybody up for that? Sounds good to me. It also says, hey, listen, back to marriage. It also says in the Bible, this is biblical. Guys, remember this. Those of you who are going to get married, remember this. The Bible says that for the first year of a, of, of a man and woman's marriage, the man shouldn't work. How different would marriages be in our culture? There's wisdom in this stuff. But the Bible literally says work for six years. I mean, what, what kind of life does that call us to then? Well, then, I mean, it's, it's going to mean a lifestyle of radical dependence and frugality and moderation and discipline and not excessive spending and living above your means. Work six years. God's going to bless you. And in the sixth year, he's going to bless you so much that there'll be enough to carry you through the seventh. See, people who begin to tell time differently, but thirdly, people who begin to use their money differently. In verses 32 through 34, you'll see that they, they, they obligate themselves to bring in the first fruit of, of every crop that came in. In other words, they weren't going to wait until it was all in, but they were going to give the very, the very first, the very best to God as a faith claim that, that it is God who brings in the harvest. You see, you know, marriage or relationships and time and money they didn't see these things as optional or up for debate. Look at the terminology they use. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves. We obligate ourselves. May we be cursed if we don't fulfill our duty in these things. The implications are huge. It is absolutely radical and countercultural and upside down. They had to separate themselves from the peoples and separate themselves to the life that God was calling them to because they're so utterly different than the lifestyle and the values and the priorities of the culture that they lived in. And that is what he's calling us to, to be a people of that kind of obedience. So, how in the world do we get that done? Where does the motivation to do that come from? On one side, we could say religion, the answer that religion has for this is just, hey, change. Try harder. Because if you don't, God will get you. You've got to earn God's blessing and love and acceptance. So be sure to be at church every week and give 10% of your money so you can be one of the good people and God will like you. 
See, if you read this and that's the conclusion you come to, then we've slipped into a, a religious mode of operating. And religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the Bible is very clear that all who try to live this way are under a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because you can't do enough. There's something desperately wrong in you that needs to be fixed. You can't just make up your mind to follow the rules because the rules aren't just outward and moral about moral conformity and rule keeping. They deal with the very inner motivations of the heart. And so, so you see, we, we, we want to be careful of not slipping into a religious mode of living before God, even as we read about all this obligation and curse and what does all of that mean? Because you see, there's another option, and the other option is, is that you can rely not on your works, but on the work of another. And remember, what we've said about Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 is the scenes are out of order. They don't go in the sequence they should because the author is trying to make a theological point. And the point is this, that God has done something to redeem us that is completely apart from what we do. God's work comes before our work. That's why the people can celebrate in chapter 8 before they confess their sins and consecrate themselves to obedience. Celebration is prior to consecration. And the point is that somehow our failure to live up to the obedience that is required of us has not forfeited us God's promises, that our sin has not nullified the covenant. And there's something different about the covenant God makes with us. And you see it in the way that God enters into Abraham, into covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis Chapter 15 in Genesis 16, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take animals and cut them in two and set it up. We're going to have a covenant. We're going to make a covenant with one another. Now, the way it would normally work is one party would walk through. They come back out and then the next party would walk through. But in this covenant that God made with Abraham, there's only one party that walks through the pieces. God. And God shows up as a flaming torch or some weird thing. That's a theophany, it's a, it's a revelation of, of, of his presence. And God himself comes. And God, while Abraham stands alongside of him and watches, God himself walks through the pieces. And here's what he's saying. Abraham, we're coming, we're entering into a covenant with one another. And if I break this covenant with you, I mean, this is, this is I can't even process this, but God himself says, if I break this covenant with you, May I be ripped open. But also, if you break this covenant with me, may I be ripped open. You see, that's exactly what happened. God was ripped open because of our sin and rebellion. And in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ has become a curse for us. That in Jesus, God came from heaven to earth to live in perfect submission to God's will. Jesus' obedience to the covenant was perfect, and yet he willingly offered himself up in our place. He went to the cross and faced the wrath of God to bear the punishment that should have been ours as payment for all of our sin. I want you to hear this. He was perfect and deserved only the Father's blessing and acceptance and love, and yet he bore our curse so that when we who deserve only curse and death could be blessed. That's the gospel. He was perfect and deserved only the Father's blessing, yet he bore our curse so that we who deserve only curse could be blessed. Our sin earned him death and curse. His obedience has earned us the Father's blessing, and all of God's promises are ours in him. 
through him, because of him, not because we've been faithful, but because he has been. And Jesus not only died for our sins, but in his life he fulfilled the design. He lived in perfect obedience, in complete submission to God the Father. He not only died, but God raised him from the dead, and even now he is seated at God's right hand. And the Bible says that God the Father and God the Son have sent God the Holy Spirit into the world to live in our hearts, to heal our brokenness, to set us free to live lives of radical obedience. That's the promise of the gospel. See, I'm reading the children's storybook Bible with my kids, and I can't recommend it highly enough to you. We just finished reading about the resurrection, and the book says that Jesus' resurrection whispered the promise that would get rid of the poison and the terrible lie and the sickness in our hearts. And here is the promise. The promise is, I love you. The terrible lie that entered into the world so long ago is just this. God doesn't love you. He doesn't want you to be happy. That is the lie that came into the world in Satan's temptation of Eve in the garden. But just like Adam and Eve, we've believed it. And so just like Adam and Eve, we live our lives grasping for God-likeness and living according to our own authority. Again, to quote this children's Bible, which is so marvelous, it says, the snake's words hissed in Eve's ears and sunk deep down into her heart like poison. Does God love you? The gospel of Jesus provides the answer once and for all. Yes. Just think about what we read in Romans 8 this week. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What could possibly separate us from the love of God? Nothing. God has taken and kept a self-maledictory oath for you and me. If God could do that, how could you ever think he doesn't love you? How could you ever think his commands are cruel or just harsh or unrealistic? He invented you. He knows what makes your engine run smoothly and what will cause a breakdown. He has stepped into time and space to do away with the guilt of your sin, and he has gone back into heaven and sent his spirit to the earth to overcome your brokenness. He loves you. And the consecration, the radical obedience we're called to in this passage is not a matter of trying harder or of doing more, but of just trusting his heart and believing in his love for you. And so I want to encourage you, take some time this week before Thanksgiving. Intentionally think through all the ways he's been good. I'm going to make a list, that's what I've decided, of all the good things that have come into my life, of every little blessing, and put them down on paper. You see, in Jesus Finally and once and for all, we see God's heart for us is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever loved. And if he has loved us like that in Jesus, then what could he possibly ask of us that we would not gladly do? Let's pray together this morning as we contemplate that and carrying the worship team come. Father, forgive us for thinking that you do not have our best interest at heart and that you just want to make us miserable because it's somehow a part of your character that you like for people to not be happy. Forgive us uh, that, that we have been so tainted by our own selfishness and our own agenda that we would ever think that to be true of you and that we would not look into your law and see that it is a, the way that you are leading us toward the life that we have been created to live. Jesus, thank you that in our hour of desperation, when, we, when, when only curse and death and destruction were in front of us, that you stepped in front of it and took our place and the curse of God fell upon you so that now we live by the power of his spirit under the blessing and the favor and the protection of our good father. Form in us as a people deep faith in your finished work on our behalf. Answer the question in our hearts. Does God really love us?
may, may a yes resound and thunder in our hearts this morning. And may we be overcome with the sense of his love for us so much so that we would go and gladly do anything you would ask of us. For the sake of our city, for the sake of your glory, we pray these things.